Yay! You made it to another episode of the Weekend Hustle podcast. My name is Shelby Oleschlager, and I'll be your host as we dive into barrel racers, athletes, and just people of the world to share, motivate, and inspire us all to be the best that we can be. Welcome, everybody, to the Weekend Hustle podcast show. Today with us, we have a really unique guest that I'm really excited to share with you all. Her name is Tara Davis, and she runs a platform and a coaching brand called The Unbridled Goddess. So to get started, Tara, first, I just want to say thank you and welcome, and I'm really excited to chat. Uh, To get into it, tell us a little bit about Unbridled Goddess and what does the unbridled mean to you? Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So to start with, I always like to start off by saying my business name, Unbridled Goddess, is a testament to my muse, my mirror, Artemisa, who is, she is the Unbridled Goddess. Um, She's the one who led me down this path and has been um, my greatest teacher. And so my journey with her is what really set me along on trying to kind of discover something a little bit different. Um, she kind of became the being that brought me home. You know, I've been working with horses for so long, um, and something always just didn't quite feel right. So, um, being able to work with her in a way that honored who she was, and, um, that meant honoring both her, incredible gifts and also the trauma and the baggage that she carried and uh, the process of uh, forgiving myself and thus forgiving all of the trauma that I carried and the journey that she took me on with that allowed us to connect in this beautiful way and kind of became the inspiration for everything that I'm doing now. Wow, that is beautiful. I'm really I just love that, how you can kind of take your wall down and understand where your horse is coming from. And you're now changing how you're showing up and it's affecting your relationship with her and how, you know, she's able to let go of her past trauma, which is so amazing. I love when things like this relate to people relationships, like us horse rider relation really does transfer over to the one with ourselves and with others. So I just love that so much. So you mentioned, you know, your old training habits or your style that didn't quite sit right. Tell us a little bit about that and what that transition was from being, you know, the, the modern way to ride and train horses to what now you believe is more of the correct holistic approach. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, growing up had a very traditional horsemanship background, uh, with a, a focus in dressage and it was a, uh, a, a German style approach to dressage, which um, can tend towards being a lot more heavy handed. And uh, oh, it's a political, <laughs> it's a whole political thing around it, yeah. but the various schools of dressage and, and that happening to be the access, I had access to teachers who were very much more in that German mindset. And uh, just feeling I'm, I'm a very competitive person. And so, and I had competitive horses and I always had competitive horses who had a lot of trauma. And so those, those horses ended up being the ones where instead of what I would do now, which would be to like completely step back from that and 
do a full restart with them and be able to give them more autonomy and help them, you know, rehabilitate emotionally and spiritually and psychologically as well as physically. Instead, what it was, was being willing to, having to be willing to ramp up and escalate constantly to meet their they would amp up and you would amp up and then they would amp up and you would have to amp up and you'd have to just be willing to keep going there. And it felt so intuitively, it felt so wrong, but as a young adult, especially, you know, you're the student, then it's so hard to speak up against people who are, you know, their intentions aren't bad. Their intentions aren't to be doing this to the horse. But when I think, especially when you're young and you're exposed to this and you kind of feel it, you know, I think, speaking now with so many clients who are adults even, and who are, have mentors and have coaches who ask them to do things that feel really uncomfortable for them. They still feel it. But as you grow older, you get more accustomed to being willing to push down that little voice, that intuition that says like, Ooh, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. And so, yeah, having that voice always coming up and inevitably always being um being shown to be correct because the horses would inevitably fall apart you know you couldn't you just can't keep upping the force and upping the escalating the pressure you just can't at some point there will always be a horse and I always ended up with the horses who would say no I'm not going to do this anymore and then you end up in really dangerous situations um and unfortunately, in the modern world, I think a lot of times those horses just get thrown out as being like, oh, it's just a bad apple or, oh, this horse just has a bad attitude or a bad work ethic. And instead of identifying and examining and identifying the issues that led up to it and what we could have done differently, we kind of, a lot of times in modern horsemanship tend to kind of throw the horse out, start over again with something fresh. It's true. Yeah. And it, it makes me just think of, you know, like, like you said, you're thinking this horse has this issue and it's like, well, we'll just keep going. We keep going. So I always think of the phrase of like, you're kind of masking the symptom, not actually the cause. So it's like, you're trying to just cover the symptoms of what's happening, but you're not actually getting to the root of the problem. So I'm curious with your, with your um, experience with it, what were some of the things that like your intuition feeling like it was wrong and how did you start to kind of break that boundary of what you were taught to what your intuition was telling you? Well, it's a, it's a multifaceted answer to this because really I did not in the moment, I never had a ability to say like, I can't do this anymore. I need to switch over to something different. It took me completely backing out of horses. I actually sold all my stuff and, um, decided I was just not going to be a horse person anymore, which, you know, it's like, that didn't work. Like cutting out your heart and being like, well, I'm just not going to breathe or have my heartbeat anymore. It just doesn't work. Um, but so in those moments though, you know, growing up, especially having experiences like, so a little bit of background, let me back up just a bit. Um, growing up, I was really lucky to be a part of a, a family who really valued horsemanship and, and my mom specifically really wanted to give me the opportunity to learn from as many people as possible and to have opportunities, um, to, to, you know, expand my horsemanship and with what was available and what was available to our family, it was 
my horses were never like the top of the line horses. I always got kind of got the rejects. Um, and they were really talented, but you know, <clears throat> a lot of times they would be the horses that other people either didn't want, or they were kind of being, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. It's a little smoky here right now. So yeah, I was, I ended up with these horses that were kind of had all these issues already. Um, and basically I always either had coaches who were telling me, you know, I needed to hit them harder. If I was riding a horse who was, you know, an energy conserver and didn't either was being pushed above his skill level or just didn't have the mental capacity to be, you know, there and working at that time and had been kind of basically desensitized to so much, so many aids that he just was super numb. Um, and, you know, having instructors who looking back now, I'm like, that was so abusive. And I was a child when I was being taught and told by adults, you know, to hold a dressage whip vertically up in the air and be hitting my horse. Like that is so unacceptable. And I felt so horrible about it, but this was, you know, I'm going and we're paying for lessons with these like acclaimed instructors that are accredited and, you know, known to be these really, they're really well-known, well-respected instructors and they get results. And that's always the thing is to an extent with those kinds of methods, you get results, you know, quote unquote, you get results until you don't. Um, but there is enough um, cognitive dissonance and also the way the, the human brain works is if, you know, you have an event and then the repercussions of that event don't come immediately afterwards. So say, you know, really hitting my horse hard works in that instance to get the horse to do what I think I'm asking it to do. But then three weeks later, you're having huge blowups or your horse is now not wanting to go into the arena. The human brain just doesn't, it's not easy. It takes a lot of awareness and it takes actively consciously choosing to look into what's happening. It's not a natural thing for our brains to connect those two things together. So it's this kind of slippery slope with this type of horse training where it's like, it gets allowances made for it because of the way <clears throat> horses are so generous and we have developed all these ways to kind of manipulate them into working. Um, but, and then on the other side of things too, the same thing with like upping the bits, that was another thing I had experiences with. And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, you know, he's running through all of the snaffles that are dressage legal. Let's put him in a, you know, double bridle. And then, you know, oh, he's doing great for a little while and it feels good and everything feels great. And then all of a sudden you're having to up the pressure on the double bridle. And then he's, you know, bursting and bolting through the double bridles. And it's like, oh, now it doesn't feel good anymore. So as a kid kind of being like, not having the strength of, well, it's not necessarily not having the strength. I never had the models. I never had it modeled to me to like stand up for things that didn't necessarily feel good. You know, um, it just, you never told your coach, I'm not doing that because I don't like it. And if you did, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you'd get yelled at, or you'd get called a bad student. And as somebody who deeply desires to be a good student, that was always like this internal battle for me. And um, so, you know, I deal with even to this day, having a lot of shame about not being able to speak up then, but also recognizing that I just did not have, I didn't have the capacity to do it at that time. And 
now realizing the importance of having role models for kids, role models for young students who are in horsemanship to be able to honor themselves and honor their intuition and also be open to, you know, having conversations. It's not like you can't just say like, well, I'm afraid of this and I'm not going to do it. Of course, you know, you have to be able to have the conversations, but I really, um, I really think that now it's, it's so important for kids to be able to feel like they can have those conversations with their coaches because also (laughs) I have, I have two bonus daughters. Um, My husband has two kids and the questions that they ask are so insightful and make me question things that I don't think I would have seen before because there's so much stuff we just do mm-hmm. as horse people, you know, with horses. And then when you have the like innocent kid being like, well, why do we do that? It's like, yeah, why do we do that? Mm-hmm. I think coaches could be able to learn a lot by allowing their, their, their students to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point too. And I like just what you said, you do talk a lot about being the student of the horse and having that awareness as well to to say okay what is the horse trying to show me and tell me and slowing everything down instead of taking you know the first reaction to like grab the whip or what people's natural reaction in their head that feels right you know like just what you're saying it's so true of just slowing it down and being that student and allowing yourself and be vulnerable enough to say, Hey, I might not know, but let's see what this path brings. Mm -hmm. And you do talk a lot about just being the student. So what has that really looked like for you as that student? Like, what are some of the main key things that you really found that horses as you're allowing it have taught you? So my favorite thing about the horses is that they, they really are such incredible teachers once you start listening to them. So with Nisa, she was the first horse that I tried positive reinforcement with um, because any sort of pressure whatsoever was really intolerable for her. She's very, um, a, very intolerant of aversives. So we had to work with um, appetitives instead. And I did not know where to look at the time. And there wasn't there were resources, but I didn't know where to look. It's not like today, which is amazing where you can, you know, you can type in hashtag clicker training on any social media uh, platform and see like incredible examples of so many people from all the way from professionals down to just like every everyday people who are, who are using it. And so um, the really powerful thing is stepping back. I, I made a conscious decision to not try to like follow a, you know, training methodology, because I had kind of, I'd always done that. I always kind of like stuck to like, Oh, I'm going to do like a natural horsemanship or I'm going to, you know, follow this academic school or whatever. And for her, it really just wasn't working. And I felt like I could continue to kind of go down and like check all these boxes. Like this does style doesn't work and this style doesn't work. And so I just decided, I don't know what's going to work. And I'm going to let her show me. And the amazing thing was probably a year in and picking up various different, you know, positive reinforcement books and going, Oh my God, this horse taught me how to do all of these complex behavior, you know, modification protocols using positive reinforcement just by following her and, and, you know, intuitively following the, the reactions and responses that she would give me. And 
it's been like that for so many different things. I can't even, I can't even, you know, quantify all these various different things where I've, I've, you know, picked up a book and been like, wow, the horse absolutely taught me that, you know, two months ago. And I've been utilizing that. And now I have language around it. I'm able to, you know, put to words what I was doing intuitively. And it's, it's intuitive for me, but it's really horse guided. You know, it's, it's being able to, um, pick up on their body language and feel like, okay, this, this feels good. This doesn't feel good. I'm going to start doing this more. Okay. Now we're going to refine that even further and refine it even further and be able to really, um, you know, break things down into these really specific ways of interacting with them. And then realizing later down the road, oh, there is actual, you know, (laughs) science-based uh language around this and and it's it's a really cool experience to be able to to have that and I it it happens all the time with like little things too where um you know I find that the horses are such they're such open beings and if we're open to listening to them they they do have a lot to teach us and when you compare that with being really curious and being really open to you know learning and picking up new information and and finding new avenues to to go down uh yeah you can the it's exponential what you can learn from them Mm -hmm. it's so true I love that so much and it I just love the fact that you could buy a course or you could do this or for me I went to the states to learn from professionals and again my experience because I've never really had much coaches and I was like, that was kind of why I went. And I learned so much of what I don't like in horse training because I was watching like, this is really abusive behavior that these trainers are trying to, especially if you're a trainer, you know, and for barrel racing, they need the results. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you keep amping up, amping up and it, 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 you might get that result, but when the owner takes it for however long those things are going to, those little holes that you've created are going to show to surface. And I think it is really empowering to know. And I want to teach people this, that they are the one, like they are their best coach, you know, Mm -hmm. like you learn so much from yourself because you allowed yourself to, and you allowed the horse to guide you, but you don't need that course. You don't always need, like, there's always good to learn and get knowledge and experiences from other people. But as far as you like you can teach yourself, like you can allow the horse, well, you can allow the horse to teach you, I guess. And I'm definitely in that place where I don't feel like I have that need to seek out knowledge from someone else, because I feel like I have developed the intuitively style that my horses work and how I work. And now we have just such a nice blended relationship where Mm -hmm. we can accomplish the things. And it's all because you know, like, like for you, it's like, you are becoming a student. And I think just that empowering aspect of trusting yourself and going forward is just so important. Um, yeah, it's so beautiful. So you mentioned, I read on your website a little bit, you talk about some fear-based training versus joy. And I'm a firm believer in having horses that really just love their job. They love what they're doing and you can't have high performers and for barrel racers, you know, like in any sport, if you're at that top level, your horse needs to actually enjoy what it's doing and do it on its own. And you mentioned just the difference between the fear base versus having the horse actually joyful with its job. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that experience and what those differences are. A huge shift for me was learning about intrinsic motivation. And so tapping into the horse's internal drives um, you know, I think we we tend to think of horses as prey animals, um, but they have 
an incredible chase drive. You know, you see this in, especially in, in Western sports, you know, mm-hmm. horses who are working with cattle and mm-hmm. being able to track, you know, those, those horses are some of the most intrinsically motivated horses you'll see, <clears throat> you know, same with a horse that's, you know, jumping, you'll, you'll watch them kind of hunt the jump mm-hmm. um, when they really love what they're doing. Um, and so being able to give that, um, you know, find an external focus and be able to have the horses have an external focus with an internal motivation. And the difference that made in my, you know, training approaches, being able to find what works and what doesn't. And part of that is being willing to, um, being willing to really like sit back and go, does my horse enjoy what he's doing? Does he like this? There are absolutely horses who just are never going to enjoy the intricacies and nitty gritty of dressage. (laughs) It's just some horses who are going to go like, no, put me on a trail and let me, you know, let me explore and let me, you know, be in this really, um, you know, intense environment and be able to take you through all these trails and stuff like that. There's some horses who are going to way vastly prefer that to, you know, dialing in high levels of collection. And there are some horses who love that so much. And I've had amazing experiences with that where, you know, I think a lot of people think that horses in sport can't enjoy themselves. And I think that's the tragedy of, of watching so many horses at high levels of sport who don't enjoy their jobs. And it's clear once you start understanding, you know, um, truly understanding equine behavior and looking at them and going like, wow, those horses are really unhappy. Um, and I really, I really hope we see, especially in the English world, I hope that we see a lot more examples of horses who are actually enjoying what they're doing, because um, I think it's a huge misconce- misconception that the, you inherently can't have a horse that's enjoying being ridden or enjoying doing a sport. Um, but the important part of it is learning how to find what they want to do and be able to cultivate that joy. Because of course, if you take a horse who's never done pee off before and go, I want you to pee off right now, they're not going to enjoy it. But if you Mm -hmm. can slowly teach a horse to organize themselves into a shape that feels really, really good, where they're learning how to bring their power together and be able to, you know, increase that impulsion. And, and, and really when we're talking about all these words, we talk about it in, um, in, modern society is like, uh, you know, things that we need to drill for and drive for, but really what we want to be doing is cultivating an internal feeling, a horse who has learned how to compress themselves and bring themselves up and really use their power. It's such a beautiful thing to witness. And those horses feel so good that, you know, and this is where it comes to intrinsic motivation, the nervous system response to a horse doing that with autonomy and being able to experience that and going like, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah. I want to do this really hard thing right now with you. When I fully understand it, it is so breathtaking. And the like, you can see them afterwards, like the absolute high that they're on of like, wow, look what I just did. You know, I know that a lot of times people will say like, that's anthropomorphizing and (laughs) you know, that they can't experience that, but the feeling of the the rush that comes from all the endorphins released when a horse is able to um, articulate themselves into a high effort movement, I think is so underestimated in the horse world. Cause what we've usually seen, you know, historically has been 
horses who are pushed to do that possibly without their consent. Um, and then of course, that's not going to feel good for them. And you're going to be left with a horse that isn't uplifted afterwards, but you know, you'll, you'll hear the, the old masters talk about these horses, how you should, you should leave the horse feeling better at the end of the session. than they did when they came into it, you should have the horse, they should be exuding pride and all this stuff. And I think people will quote that and they want to aim for that, but to be able to actually see that in action when you let the horse have autonomy and be able to consent to being able to do these high effort movements where you're really kind of coming together in this harmonious dance. I just, I wish, I wish more people could experience that because I think they would understand then the capacity that horses have for doing things with humans. It's not just like as black and white as, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z is abusive. We should never work towards doing this horse sport ever again, you know? it can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> There's good in all of it. Yeah, it's so true. And I definitely experienced that where you feel the horse being proud of mm-hmm. like, and people have said that like, oh, the horse knows it's gorgeous. Like the horse, because how they're standing. And if you really relate it to human behavior, how we stand. And I was talking to uh, Josh Nichols a few weeks ago. And he just said, you know, like if you're in a good posture, you're going to emotionally feel more like that confidence because of how you're physically portraying yourself and like you said that feeling I think is so important for people to know it's like what are you giving your what feeling are you actually giving your horse and I think when we lead more with that then so many issues could really be taken away like out of the equation um, especially for barrel racing because I think barrel racing has had some bad bad um, you know people don't always love it because of what it looks like but again it is it can be beautiful if we actually have the horse that you know you said hunting the hunting the jumps for us it's hunting the barrels like if they're actually getting in there on their own and they're going to go and do their job and hold themselves how they've been kind of taught to hold themselves in a way that's effective and efficient and like you do develop that really nice relationship because Mm -hmm. you guys are on the the same path that's beautiful I know it's it's again with coming back to coming back to um observing horse sports through a different lens and being able to see mm-hmm. you know horses who are able to understand the task that's given you know and for barrel racing it's like obviously it's about getting around those barrels and giving a horse an external focus like that like a horse who understands i would love to see by the way i would love to see a horse who is trained to do barrels with clicker training, I feel like actually would be completely doable. I've done some Liberty, you know, barrel. It's not like it's not barrels. Cause I haven't done like the pattern or anything, but mm-hmm. I've done it at Liberty and gosh, like they love, I call it a boomerang effect. Like when you can, you know, you, the, they target the barrel, they know they have to go around the barrel and you send them off. And then when they come around that barrel, they are hauling ass and uh-huh. they're, excuse me, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. That's a, you're allowed. You can say hauling ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like coming around that hot and the way they use themselves. And it's interesting mm-hmm. because it's something I had developed with Liberty work. Um, you know, when they're just circling around you or, or you're just training them to do circles, they can really kind of hold themselves really poorly. And so if you give them an external fourth focus, like a barrel where it's like, you need to wrap yourself around this and the interesting thing of like watching them shift their weight and use their outside shoulder and be able to like stand up and use all four legs and all four, you know, pillars mm-hmm. of the table, um, for them to be able to use themselves. But yeah, I would love to see a horse trained 
with to ride a barrel uh, pattern with clicker training because I feel like again with that intrinsic motivation like giving them an external focus giving them a task that they feel like mm-hmm. they can complete like I feel like it would be a really um a really cool thing and you probably would be able to have a lot of success with it because okay yeah. maybe we maybe we can make that happen me the barrel racer yeah. you do clicker training <laughs> that's I so love cool. that. yeah and I like what you just said the boomerang effect because mm-hmm. like like you said earlier how you do something but then learning the words to go with it really help internalize that process and when I train my horses like I and when I help people it's like I get them to that spot to have that boomerang effect because mm-hmm. horses want to do it and it's like if you can use that to your advantage um I've talked about a lot of just like pushing them up to that spot where like you said they can have that snap because mm-hmm. they naturally want to and when they get there it's fun because they're like doing it on their own and they just want to get after it totally. so that's cool yeah. that you've noticed that as well yeah the neurophysiological, you know, side of all of that too. And and the way that, um, you know, psychology works into it and how the nervous system interplays. It's, it's amazing how, um, when they can find that place where they really want to, you know, kind of turn and burn and you see it at Liberty all the time, like on recall and all that sort of stuff, like they'll turn that corner and they just want to like dig in and go. And it's, Mm. it's really fun to see. And it's, you know, it's, um, it does release a huge amount of endorphins for them, which is inherently good for them. So I'm all, I like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so cool. Yeah. Make them feel good. And I'm curious though, like just going back to your initial horse and you talked a little bit about emotional rehab mm-hmm. and obviously that's super important. So tell us a little bit more about that. And if you're getting a horse, cause I've had and I'm kind of like, I've had horses that I've gotten from people that I feel so bad for, cause I know that they've been through so much trauma and pushed beyond their limits and getting physical problems. And they're mentally just so blocked off and having all yeah. these issues that mind body are just not connected or connected to you. So I'm really curious, what are some of the emotional rehab, like cases that you've had and what are some of the things that have really helped them overcome that to build that connection? Sure. So, um, I think when you, when you get horses in who have a, uh, you know, an unhealthy relationship with humans, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're afraid of humans. I think that's a huge factor where people go like, well, my horse isn't afraid of me. So it's not a emotional problem or my horse is not traumatized because I can, you know, go in and they present themselves for haltering and I can tack them up just fine. I can get on just fine. And we have, we can walk trot can or, you know, do X, Y, and Z under saddle and everything's fine. But then you have these like massive blowups or you have these, like these kind of in it, quote unquote, inexplicable issues that pop up. Um, and so in general horses who have had, it doesn't have to be consistent too. Like, I think that's another thing that people maybe don't necessarily or they underestimate a little bit because you'll be like, well, this horse has had a great life and yet they've had, you know, a few very intense negative experiences that can cause a huge amount of emotional turmoil within the horse and humans, you know, looking into human psychology and realizing the effects that trauma have on us long-term mm-hmm. and really diving into the effects that trauma, like mental trauma, emotional trauma has on the body as well is so underestimated in the horse world. And, you know, our horses experience a lot more trauma, I think, than most people think they do, because we truly do 
ask of them so much more than they naturally, you know, we have them so far out of their natural habitat. You know, we don't necessarily, a lot of people aren't giving their horses what they need in terms of, you know, their species specific requirements. You know, we're, we're putting them in paddocks or stalls and keeping them separate. And we're asking them to get into horse trailers and all these things and not saying that you can't or shouldn't do that, but that we need to um, honor the fact that how we keep our horses and the, the simple nature of the horse living in the horse human environment is potentially traumatizing to them and being able to mitigate the issues that we can cause just by the very nature of interacting with them is important. You know, I don't think it means that you need to go like, oh, we should just set all the horses free and never interact with them. But being able to say, how can I, how can I look at the environment that my horse is in, analyze what could be done better, and then put that into, into action. Because what I've discovered in working with my horses is one of the the key things to rehabilitating a horse is providing for them a life in which their needs are being met without the human. So if I can come in and take a horse that's in a stall 23 hours a day and has one hour of turnout, and I can go and do an amazing Liberty session in the arena where they have consent and everything's great. That's wonderful. But what really needs to happen is if I want to make the progress that should happen if I want to be working on the, you know, the deep underlying issues that are happening, I need to address how that horse's lifestyle is affecting them and be able to make the changes that are possible. You know, obviously you're not going to be able to develop a, you know, 12 horse herd that every horse can go out into and have, you know, massive pastures and, and, you know, varying landscapes and all this, like, that's just not feasible for everybody challenge accepted <laughs> well, horses okay <laughs> you right. so. Every, everybody's favorite excuse like oh I have to have this many horses yeah. I heard it once on a podcast <laughs> um but yeah I might be getting a little bit tra- off track of what the original question was but I think in generalizing about um emotional rehab for the horses my foundation of everything is providing the best possible life for the horses in the situation that they are given. So with my own horses, I'm really lucky because, um, I have full control over everything as a trainer, you know, you have, you know, the ability to make a lot more progress a lot quicker than if you aren't able to be fully, you know, in control of the environment. Like I'm so lucky to have my own ranch where I can really cultivate a space of healing, which I think is really important, but, um, being able to, you know, work with people who are in boarding environments or who have a limited amount of resources to put towards it, um, you know, doing the best with what you can and making choices about the key things that are going to increase the horses, um, overall happiness and general welfare in life. And then being able to do, um, being able to do that is the foundation. You know, I can give exercises that you can do with your horse when you're working with them, but if you're not working on those other, you know, 23 hours of the day that you're not interacting with them, you're not going to make a ton of, of, um, you know, impact on the horse's emotional state. So that's been, that's been huge is developing that, um, 
ability to look at the horse and recognize what they need and be able to make the changes or suggest making changes and getting really creative with what you can do because not everybody has acres that they can put their horses on with the herd. You know, it's, it's, um, getting creative is, is the fun part. Mm -hmm. For sure. And you do mention, like, I do like that, just the whole horse approach and the care thinking beyond just, oh, well, I work with it for an hour a day and it's a good time, but it's like even a step further. It's like, how is the horse? Like, think of yourself, like that empathy level. Think of how you would be if you're locked in this room, but then you get that one hour of free time and yeah, you did well with it, but your overall wellness and happiness and like just everything, your emotional levels and everything aren't going to really be fully met because of those other 23 hours. So I do think just shedding light on that is really important. And you mentioned the word of having that (laughs) consensual relationship. And I think we did kind of touch on it a little bit, but can we go a little deeper in that of, you know, like allowing the horse, again, it goes back to like allowing them to guide us and direct us, but even a step further, really, what is that consensual relationship? What have you seen kind of being the wrong way? And then what is your approach to having that, that balanced relationship? Sure. So, you know, consent is a really uh, complicated topic when it comes to a nonverbal being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to be able to build a foundation of communication in which you are able to read into their expressions and their communication because, you know, horses are com- communicating nonverbally with us all the time. And it's a lot of it is <clears throat> being able to um, read them, but then the other part of it is, you know, if you want to have a fully consent is only able to be given when no actually means something. So if you can't allow your horse to say no, then the yeses don't necessarily mean a true yes, you know, and that's something that as it's a very abstract concept in horsemanship, and it's not something that's been done very much before, you know, that's, just the that's just the the truth of it is that it we haven't seen a lot of true consent-based horsemanship over history you know horses have the ability to be conditioned to go along with the program and that's 99.999% of horses that we see are you know they aren't choosing their path they aren't going yes to you know that step and not proceeding further until you get an authentic yes um they you know horsemanship is designed horsemanship up until this point has been designed to um teach the horse to do what we want like that's just the the simplest Mm -hmm. form of of explaining it and so you can have horses that enjoy their jobs and are not consenting to them that is Mm. that is the truth. You can have horses who are not wildly unhappy. You can have horses that are actually like pretty, they have a great life and they are enjoying themselves and are not necessarily consenting partners. Um, you can have horses that like happily meet you at the gate and they haven't been given consent up until that point, you know, but, um, and so a lot of times, this is why it's a kind of an unpopular hasn't gotten popular yet in terms of, um, you know, the sport horse world, because you can take a horse who is a pretty happy looking horse who does their job and you have a lot of success. And then you go, I want to give you consent, which means you can say no. 
And let me tell you, horses who figure out they can say no after a lifetime of not being allowed to say no are like, oh, no, 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 no. And it's, it's, um, it can be a really intense process. And that's where a lot of people that I've found end up going, you know, like a full consent based horsemanship approach isn't necessarily my jam because you have to go through the very steep uphill of the horse going like, I'm going to express my autonomy and you can't control me. And that's not something that a lot of horse people want, you know, it doesn't necessarily, um, it's not for everybody and that's totally fine. And I'm never going to judge somebody for going like, I actually want to be able to override their consent. Sometimes I'm not going to judge anybody for that because, um, it is something that's necessary for, you know, basic welfare sometimes. Um, ideally if you are able to, which I feel like really lucky to have been able to do this with my horses. And again, I feel very lucky because I have the space to do this with my horses. I have the time to do this with my horses and I have the skills to be able to establish consent based, uh, behavior so that I can do things like welfare, things like having their feet done, having vet care, that sort of thing, where it's, you know, if you are somebody who ha- doesn't have a ton of experience with this and you are trying to go down that road without a mentor, without somebody who can help guide you through it, it can be really intense. And then, you know, the process of allowing the horse to say no and having them go through their phase of going like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. Um, it can like, be okay. disheartening because it can take a while. And it really is interesting how, um, if you're willing to sit with that and really sit in that kind of like, well, I guess we're not going anywhere phase. Um, mm-hmm. And you get through to the other side where they go, okay, I see that you see me. I see that you're listening to me. I see mm-hmm. that I'm not going to be pushed to do something I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And then, oh my gosh, that's when the magic happens. Because when you get an authentic yes from a horse, you can have a horse who is like, you know, what we would call lazy and unmotivated and just like not necessarily the most spectacular mover, all these kinds of things. And then you have that horse go through this process and they come out on the other side and they're like this powerful autonomous being that's like, yeah, I want to dance with you. And I want to like really be there with you. It's, it's really amazing. Um, and again, not for everybody, but when you can experience it, it's, it's really cool. It takes a lot of commitment. Um, and, uh, the interesting thing too, is like, once you have a horse that does have a very well-established autonomous relationship with you, there are where there are moments where you can be like, look, I'm, I'm actually going to ask you to do this. And because they have that really solid foundation of knowing that they're, if they really were like, no, I'm not doing this you would honor that. And so, um, you know, I think where a lot of people look at what I do and go, well, when you give the horse consent, you're just never going to be able to get them to do things. Or what if you need to, you know, I get this a lot. What if you, there's an emergency and you have to get that horse in the trailer. And it's like, yeah, well, a horse that's mature in their autonomy, you can, you can do that. It's, they will be fine. And you're the great thing about that is that you're not going to have traumatized that horse. So a horse who, you know, is constantly having their no not be listened to is 
may sometimes be a very traumatized horse, but a horse who is very self-assured and understanding in their relationship with their human. If you have to have those moments where you go like, nope, I'm overriding you. I am the human. I know what's best in this situation. And I have to ask you to do this. You're not going to traumatize them because they have a good solid emotional base Mm -hmm. and they are resilient and capable of, you know, going through something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the difference right there of having a horse, like you said, that's willing to do it. And you just said, you know, like if it's their decision, like watch out. And I think that (laughs) is so cool because horses have huge hearts. And I think one of our issues is we're, we're kind of like dampering them because of the forceful nature of us trying to get these results where I like that approach. And I'm sure it is really hard because I would not know how to start being like, okay, if you don't want to do it, I guess we're not going to do it. Like, (laughs) so is there a way that you could start incorporating kind of that awareness to the consent without going full blown? Like, yes. Okay. The horse (laughs) just couldn't do it. Well, no. (laughs) Yeah. That's the other thing is it's, you know, you don't have to go full, full blown, like off the deep end, like I have. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, I think a lot of people will expect if they see me interacting with their horse, with any horse that I'm going to just be diving right into like how I would do it. If I had the ability to, you know, do it my way with my horses when I'm free, you can't take a horse that doesn't have autonomy and go like, I'm giving you full autonomy right now, just because I'm interacting with you this one time, you have to be able to speak their language and be able to meet them where they're at, which is again, a reflection of how we interact with humans. You can't just go, you need to go full blown deep into this, like kind of crazy off the wall method. You meet them where they're at and you give them the tools that you can give them and maybe help them understand consent in smaller things in smaller chunks. You can absolutely start understanding how your horse is interacting with you and communicating with you, you know, really simple things like, um, uh, watching how a horse interacts when you touch them, you know, there are, we touch our horses so often and I'm so guilty of this because I love snuggling. I love snuggling with my horses. They're so cute. And they're so soft. They're so soft. And they just want to smooch them. Um, (laughs) and you know, I'm really lucky. I have some very like snuggly, cuddly horses who enjoy that sort of interaction, but I also have horses who really would prefer not to be you know, their, their love language isn't tactile touch. Their love language is like standing and sharing space or something in various different things like that. But I think if, if you can approach even the, just that small aspect of horsemanship of like, how do they enjoy interacting with you on a affection scale, you know, an affectionate level. And so I actually have a, I believe I have a, um, a little article on my website um, called uh, "Love Equine Love Languages," yeah. and being able—that's a great place to start for people who want to um, kind of just dabble in feeling like what consent-based horsemanship is like. And um, gosh, the feelings that come up when your horse goes, "I don't want you to touch me," and you're like, "But I want to love you so bad." Um, and learning how to express your affection for them in ways that actually that they really enjoy. Um, so that's a great place to start, which can look like looking for really subtle signals that they're giving you. Do they lift their head when you're touching them? You know, if you're going to touch their face, they slightly lift their head, they slightly move away. Their muzzle might tighten up a little bit. Their eye might get a little tense and they may have been conditioned over the course of their life to just put up with it. 
Mm. Maybe they don't really like it that much. And also maybe if you back off, they will realize that they have the ability to express themselves and they actually might like it down the road. That's where you get people. Look, your horse might not like it right now because they've been pushed to do it or they feel like they just kind of have to put up with it. But your horse actually might be a very tactile horse. Like Nisa super does not like non-consensual touch. Oh my gosh. But if it's on her terms, she is laying her head on your shoulder. She wants you to fully hold her weight up and (laughs) snuggle her. She's like super, super, super tactile when it's on her terms. And so- that took a long time, but it took me not pushing my, my agenda on her. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, horses who might have a much more subtle answer to you reaching out and touching them. Like her answer was like, get out of here. Don't touch me. I don't want you to touch me. But another horse is who might have a better relationship with humans and hasn't experienced so much trauma. Their response might be something super simple, like just slightly shifting their weight away from you. And those being able to start to look at those behaviors, and then you'll start to see them in a lot of the things that we do. Like there are plenty of horses who actually really dislike being groomed, but we love grooming. So we're going to groom them. But if we start to be able to say like, okay, I'm going to look and see what my horse responds to with these different brushes. Even something as simple as going, okay, my horse really doesn't like this one particular stiff brush that I love because I can get all the dander out of them, but they actually really don't enjoy that. Maybe I can use a curry comb and they love the curry comb and they really love leaning into that. And I'll use that instead. And then I'll use a soft brush to you know, wipe off all the dander. It's, it can be something as simple as that. And if that's all you do, and everything else, you stick to your traditional horsemanship, that's totally fine. It's cool to be able to add in these little tiny places where we can go, how can I make my relationship with my horse just a little bit better by giving them the opportunity to feel heard? Mm -hmm. And that's something I think that a lot of horses don't get is to feel heard. And when you give that to a horse, even in something really, really small, it is going to increase your relationship so, so, so much. And the trickle effect that that can have, the, the, or the ripple effect that, that that can have throughout the rest of your relationship with your horse can be actually so much more momentous than you would even think. You know, I have people who incorporate something really small like that. And they're like, wow, you know, our relationship under saddle has changed completely. And my horse actually like meets me at the gate now, instead of, you know, kind of maybe not running away when you're haltering them, but you know, they're kind of like, oh, I guess you can halter me now. They're like, yes, let's, let's interact. Let's hang out. Let's do stuff. So it's really simple things that can have Mm -hmm. a huge, huge effect. Yeah. I like that you brought that up about just the love and affection because I read that article before we talked earlier and I was like, this is so true. Like just that small little thing. And like you said, it's so hard for us because our emotional needs of, oh, we have a horse, like we want to do all this stuff and love and get everything we can out of it for our own selfish reason. We're not actually considering, does the horse even like this? And the one thing I do want to bring up is you said, as far as giving um, like reward as affection, like, oh, good job. Or like you pat, like, I know I've read once and I don't do it anymore of like hitting your horse's neck, like patting, like good job after a run. But if you actually were paying attention to the horse and you said that too, where they're probably going to start bracing their neck because they actually Mm -hmm. don't want to just be like hit on their neck. That doesn't mean good job to them. Like they, to us, it's like, yeah, that's a good job. Like good boy. 
it's like it's not a dog and they don't respond like that (laughs) yeah yeah and it's something that's you know there are scientific studies out there that look at the horse and look at their muscle tone and their like very you know micro expressions as that happens and horses don't get anything from it. I mean, there are some horses that love like a real good heavy scratch and some horses are more tolerant to aversives and they don't mind it as much. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the the whole <clears throat> cultural, excuse me, <clears throat> okay. cultural, you know, habit of padding is one that I'm like, oh, that one could just go right on out the window. And yeah, you actually, we don't need it. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Uh huh. Exactly. Well, hopefully people listening to this will start to understand and realize just the importance of everything that you said and how just that last little bit, it can be something so small that does have that really big ripple effect that even just ourselves carrying on that awareness in more areas than just that groundwork. But when we're riding, we might start noticing like, oh, like, how are their ears? Like, are they focused? Are they tuned in? And all these other things that, again, really start with us of just bringing that more awareness to them what are they actually telling us because it is a relationship they don't speak English we don't speak horse well we try but you know like we can start learning our own languages together and I think that ultimately brings the best relationship and best working relationship with them so I love all of this uh to just wrap it up I don't want to leave you too much longer but if there is one final piece of advice or one last thing you'd like us all to be thinking about after this call what would it be um, I think following your intuition is, it's just the most important thing in horsemanship that learning to how to listen to your intuition, because it's there and we might have habitually like squashed it down and we don't, we don't even necessarily hear it anymore, but learning how to bring that back up and, and be willing to speak out for it, you know, um, interacting with all these equine professionals and realizing that, you know, a person who goes like, yeah, I really feel like my horse is not sound, but the horse, you know, checks out sound with all these vets and, you know, they can't find the source of the pain. And then it's always like, you know, years later, oh, wow, look, we finally found it. And it's been right all along, you know, listening to your horse, listening to what they have to say. And a lot of that looks like listening to your intuition, because when we say, you know, we don't speak horse and horse can speak English, but what we do speak is energy. And what we do speak is, you know, not to get super deep into it, but oh, like you can our, go deep. <laughs> our guts, you know, when you say like we have a gut feeling, there is so much information being given out by our nervous system, which has a huge interaction, like the gut brain axis and the way that our nervous system is tied into our gut and how we express emotion. We are like, we're a beacon of, we're just pulsing and radiating information all the time. And our horses are picking up on that and vice versa. Our horses are doing the same. They're more conscious and aware of it, but it's just like when you, if you watch a horse herd, you know, and like they all might, you watch expression and emotion ripple through the herd when you start to really like tap into it and look into it, you can watch these feelings rippling through the herd. And it's not necessarily like there's micro expressions that are happening too, but it's beyond that. There's like a a literal exchange of energy that happens within this herd. Once they've attuned to each other, they're able to be feeling off of each other's intuition. And so when we develop 
our intuition by learning how to listen to the horse. We're learning how to listen to ourselves and we're also learning how to express ourselves to our horses. When we can learn that we are actually able to, you know, communicate with them by tapping into how we're feeling and understanding what we're radiating and understanding what they're radiating, we can have much more of a, a deeper communication level with them. And we can learn how to hear what they're saying by listening to our own intuition. Like you can kind of think of our intuition when we're working with horses as being like the little translator that's like, hey, I'm picking up on some signals here. Mm -hmm your conscious brain might not necessarily understand them or be able to put words to them, but there's something in there that you're picking up on. And that's that like base, you know, prehistoric aspect of humanity where we've kind of like, we're so smart and like, we have all these words to express ourselves and communicate, but like our deepest and most primal level of communication is energy. And if we can learn how to become that kind of uh, you know, transmitter, translator for the horse and learn to listen to your intuition, you can, um, you can access a lot more information than even you've read or that you've learned from a mentor. You can actually learn a lot about um, what's going on and, and then taking that and being proactive with it. You know, if something doesn't feel right, honoring that, if something feels really good, honoring that, you know, mm -hmm. just being willing to, to go there with yourself and, and with your horses. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so good. That's like <laughs> the final cherry on top. And it just made me think of just thinking of that, of like the intuition, as opposed to our brain, how like our own thoughts necessarily aren't always going to pick up like our subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking the phrase of like a bridge, it's kind of like bridging that gap. So yeah. our intuition is then going to be bridged over to like what we're actually thinking and how we can actually process it into words. But it starts as that inner thought and that knowing, and I've been caught of that. And it really bothered me because I had this feeling about a horse people told me no and then I continued on with what I was doing but it really did not sit right and then later on after a year of just frustration it's like if I just listened to myself and actually decided to put the horse first maybe instead of me trying to get this result faster I learned so much from that experience it wasn't a good experience but I learned so much of just like bridging that gap of my intuition knowing and then understanding what it really means so yeah, I think that's super beautifully yeah that's great that's yeah. so beautiful ah, you speak so well and this has been so amazing so for people that resonate with your messages and they want to learn more and connect with you and see some of your work where can they find you you can find me on instagram and facebook at unbridled goddess i have a website and www.unbridledgoddess.com um you can email me at tara at unbridledgoddess.com and yeah I think that's sure. I think that's all the platforms. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have your links below so if anyone wants to check it out faster they can do that but I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your knowledge and wisdom and this has been really great. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. <laughs>